0: Welcome to Mama Talk Talks, A Different Take, a podcast where everyday people around the globe share a different take on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abimambo, Mambo, and I'm pleased you're joining us today. Welcome. Hi, Anjali. Hey, Abam. I am super excited. We're finally doing this. It's been forever. I've been trying to catch you. You're so busy.
1: That is not true. I think, but we've just, yeah, it has been a while since we've been talking about it. So it is really good to finally be doing this with you. And I just want to say what a fantastic job you're doing. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to hear you. And uh, you really have a gift. So it's great what you're doing. Thank you.
0: I'm just having so much fun, right? Especially now with COVID-19 and lockdown, or as we're calling it in Singapore, circuit breaker. It's an excuse to really just spend time with people that I don't get to spend time with because I'm always running mm. back and forth, right? So in that sense, I'm really grateful for it. And you're mm. a good case in point. The way that yes. I'm spending time with that, usually it'd be hard for us to find time to just hang.
1: That is true. That is true.
0: So Anjali, I invited you because we have so much to talk about. You're such a deep thinker. You've contemplated the world in really interesting ways that I think our listeners will find very fascinating. But before we delve into everything we're going to talk about, I just think you should go ahead and just introduce yourself.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, Firstly, those were very kind words. Thank you so much. I don't know whether I qualify for those, but anyway, it was good to hear. Uh, So, yeah, so I've been in design. That's my sort of career, so to speak, so far. That's what I've been doing for the last 15, 20 years. I've been working in a design agency in Singapore. I'm Indian, I'm single, I've been in Singapore for about eight years now. And actually, it's a really interesting time that you should be asking me this question because I'm on the brink of a sabbatical, which I'm really excited about. And I think it it is a point in time in my journey where if you ask me who I am, I have to say I really don't know at this point. And I am going to discover new things as I go along. But the long and short of it is that I'm actually, I'm in Singapore uh, for now, and I'm here for about another month just waiting for the lockdown to get back
0: home. You know, it's so fascinating you talk about, you know, who you are at the moment and not knowing what that is. There is so much pressure as we go through life to define who we are. And increasingly, I think when I was younger, I was so eager to put a stamp on something or put a marker on something and say, this is who I am. And the older I've gotten, I'm like, you know, I kind of don't know. And sometimes I don't know at all because it might change depending on changing circumstances. And at the time that we're in right now, I'm finding being at home 24-7 gives you a lot of time (laughs) to contemplate all kinds of things, including who am I? What has the experience been like for you so far just being on lockdown?
1: It's been really interesting, actually. And, you know, I'm actually somebody, I mean, I'm single, right? So I spend a lot of time by myself anyway. And it's something that I have grown to become more comfortable with over the years. But having said that, I think there is, this particular time has been interesting because you don't, at least I didn't realize all the subtle ways in which I hide for myself, you know? I think that's the best way to put it. Like, the, you know, work is obviously one thing where I'm just getting out there and, you know, doing what I do. But apart from that, I think when you're just by yourself and you literally have 24 hours to spend, of which hopefully you're sleeping for at least eight. Yes. uh, You know, and I have found myself doing quite a few different things. One is, of course, and reading. And, you know, and lots of Netflix binging and all of that. But I do notice that any of these things, which reading is a good thing, there's nothing wrong with it. But I do notice that when I do it excessively. Yes there is this particular quality that comes into pretty much anything I do There is there is a certain compulsiveness so there is a certain sort of energy to it which mm-hmm. is quite distinctive which I think for me at least has become far more apparent in this time in these times and to notice what that and to use those I think as as pieces of information and what are they really saying and sort of just sitting with that I think that's what seems to be happening at at the moment, and a lot of it is so bloody uncomfortable. <laughs> it's really not like, you know, I wish I could say it's all, you know, roses all the time. No, it's not. I think it's like deeply uncomfortable. But I also, I'm at a point in my journey, I think, where I do see the merit sitting with that discomfort mm. and actually learning from it rather than trying to escape it constantly, which has been historically the story of my life. So, yeah. yes. So I hear you. I mean, yeah.
0: We'll come back to the story of of your life. One thing you said there that I think will resonate for a lot of people boils down to a comment a friend of mine made about a month ago before much of the world was really under lockdown. And she said, lockdown and this whole pandemic is going to be very hard on those who are not able to sit with themselves.
1: Mm.
0: And at the time, I mean, I didn't really take it to mean anything because I'm naturally quite introverted, so I'm used to spending a lot of time on my own. I don't think I've, I've had to, because the external world, especially the business world, is so full of extroverts who mm-hmm. pose as extroverts. I've mm. never actually thought of the world through their eyes. Like, what happens to an extrovert when they're stuck at home? Mm. Or they don't have this kind of interface with the rest of the world that gives them life and gives them vibrancy and gives them energy, right? And the mm. inherent kind of discomfort that comes with it, which is similar to what I experience when I'm tossed in the middle of the crowd, mm. I'm forced to start making small talk. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, I wrote an article on LinkedIn about, about how the coronavirus is impacting our homes. And one of the things I remarked on was work. So you talk about compulsiveness. Mm. The way that I've worked has shifted, right? And mm. I've always been somebody who works a little more than I really need to, mm. and, I, and I've had to watch that and manage it but a lot of my colleagues and a lot of my friends and a lot of people in the community are saying they're just working longer hours mm. which is curious because we all say we don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic we don't know where we're going and yet we're all working so hard there's a compulsiveness to that don't you think
1: absolutely and I think you know it's a conversation I've had with a few friends as well and I think one of the biggest discoveries I think is around workaholism during this time, you know, I think that is one of the sort of seems to be a big theme for a lot of people. It is not mine, I have to say, at least not at the moment. <laughs> but, you know, it is definitely, I think, and I've come to understand any of these isms, I think, is just a sort of like, and, and that's that's the way I have, I think, it's been my experience that anything that I tend to do excessively. Yes. Or anything I tend to do that on the face of it makes me feel good mm. or makes me look good mm-hmm. or it's one of those themes where and it's excessive. I absolutely have come to recognize it now as coping mechanism, and it is it seems to be something, and it's a tool actually you know mm-hmm. it feels like it's something that we have all in varying degrees and for different people, and one end of the one end of the spectrum I think is you know the drugs and the sort of very obvious substances yes. but I think on the other most subtler end of the spectrum there are things which are traditionally considered to be good for you
0: like work, you know?
1: like, work. like work and that has been the traditional sort of masculine thing to do right like as and I see so many of my male friends as well struggling with that because they're that one, they're being forced to spend time at home in a way that they don't normally do. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, confronting relationship challenges which I think have been swept under the carpet and how. Having to spend time with children way that they're not used to, you know. So I think all of this is sort of like throwing up, and I hope in a good way, throwing up the, the uncomfortable stuff, which I think a lot of us spend a lot of time avoiding.
0: There are so many directions we can go with this, And I'll go one place and then we'll come back to where you talked about your own compulsions. Work. Work is an interesting one because Mm. I I think there are two kind of categories of compulsive behaviors. Some that are dubbed negative, like drug Mm. use, alcohol use, and others that are actually excused. Mm. Because in the beginning, they look like good things. For example, work. We reward people who work excessively. But like you said anything that you do excessively is masking something else It's taking time away from something else and as i've just kind of observed myself during this time and even before the pandemic i had a recognition that i work on necessarily long hours and Mm. the question for me was always why am i doing that Mm. and a lot of it was i think in the last two years was one there was just a lot of work and I think corporations and businesses do bank on people who want to work a lot to get ahead. But the other part of it was a question for me around am I trying to prove that I've earned my spot or am I trying to earn my spot? Right. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the point you're making about masking something or numbing Mm -hmm. something. As I reflect on how much everyone is working. We're calling it productivity right pandemic productivity (laughs) it's raising questions around your home now Mm. you are not flying anymore for those who used to fly a lot Mm. you're not commuting anymore which is the vast majority of people yet how are you using that time you're not using it for a lot of people with your family Mm. you're using it to do more work What does that say about us, right? Is it just that we value work? And there's nothing wrong with working, but I'm just trying to make sense of it.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think there's obviously work has historically been the way most of us I think value and worth yes. in the world you know and however much you may define that work and you may define that work I think in corporate settings which is or you may also define work in any way that actually gives you a sense of self-worth and validation and I think that is what is being discovered I feel like at this point in time that you have to you in this discomfort I think And you're a very self-aware person. I'm not sure how many other people are, you know, that self-aware or actually can spot this about themselves. But to actually ask yourself, what is your fundamental relationship with work? Yes. with Your work, you know, and what is it that this job or this role that you seem to be playing is giving to you? And I think there are people who will find answers to that question extremely uncomfortable. I'm already uncomfortable just listening <laughs> to you. <laughs> yes, especially if you've been in that sort of like you know, rat race. So you've been in that cycle, and rat race, you know, gives you a sense that it's only about the corporate world. Well, I don't think it's only about the corporate world. Right. I think pretty much anywhere you're trying to prove that you're better than somebody else, you're trying to prove that you have value in a way that nobody else has you mm. know and which I think is at the root of the kind of narcissism you see in today's day and age on social media or and all of us me included when I need those my vanity kicks in and I need those sort of like five red notification marks on my you know Facebook or whatever like yeah. but to I think to start I don't know if this time at least it's, I, I've gone through so many cycles of this but now I think I've just gotten a little better at recognizing these signs faster Mm -hmm. and to know that even though I may be looking like I'm doing something really good and productive, it is actually my relationship with that thing that defines what's really going on. Um, Yeah. And I think that those are tough questions. Those are tough questions to ask and tough answers to swallow. Not fun.
0: I'm already feeling like for anybody listening to this one, (laughs) they're going to go on a journey of Profound self reflection and with a degree of discomfort, right? And I think some of the best, clearest answers come to us not on a nice, soft, velvety cushion, but sometimes oh, on like a prickly couch, right? We were we're, we're comfortable and we have to just kind of get out of our own kind of illusions. So, to help us give some context to this, so we had talked about early on, and I kept saying I'll come back to this, and I have now. You talked about just compulsions of your own, and you just now Mm. said that you've gone through a few cycles of this so you can recognize it. Talk to me a little bit about what some of those compulsions were and what your journey has been around that. And given what you know now, how do you spot when you're Mm. engaging in compulsive behavior?
1: Right. I grew up in... You know, my father was in the Air Force in uh, back home in India and I grew up in Air Force stations all over India and we moved every two years, you know, and there was this sense of, I think, which is, which is something that I think all children of the forces will understand, which is the sort of feeling constantly that you're the new girl in class, you know, yep. and this constant feeling of, Oh my God, how am I going to negotiate this new space? How am I going to try and fit in? How am I going to try and, you know, uh, make my friends and mm-hmm. have my tribe and have. And that's been such a constant part of my journey that I feel like, and what I'm telling you now is obviously massively in retrospect. Yes. I was nearly no, not anywhere uh, you know with any kind of self-awareness when I was like growing up so but I think that and why I say that is because that sort of like I think molded my perspective in the world which was basically that I had to work really hard to actually find a place or to sort of like find my comfortable sort of like spot. And and I think so over. And I think a few sort of tragedies helped along the way. I think I, I lost my father when I was fifteen, mm. and and my family I think was just sort of you know. And I think it's difficult when you go through these difficult times mm. in where I come from, where things like mental health or where things like how do you cope with these? What are the kind of tools you need to use to cope with things like grief? Yeah. Uh, you know, is so. Alien, that I don't know how the arrogance of it to think that we're all just so like we just you know crack anything by ourselves. Yeah. I think I just you know now in retrospect the arrogance of that is really shocking. Um, but I think growing up with that kind of like I think we're just winging it. I guess, yes. in some way. And yeah. part of the winging it, I think, meant that I believed that I had to look a certain way, I had to be a certain way, I had to behave a certain way, I had to have... And plus, you know, you, you have that as your sort of inner uh, mechanism and then you add cultural stories to it, which is then, you know, you have to have... Eventually, your life journey is about finding a man, a job, a husband, children, children and that's yeah. when you're successful. So you add all of that, and I think that created like quite a cocktail for me. And I eventually realized that I was, now I can tell you that when I look back, I literally can compulsively use anything that feels good. And whether that has been alcohol, whether that has been relationships, whether that has been food lately, sugar, you know, and all of these, I think, start out as fairly... What do I say? Like harmless. Yeah, they're, they're fairly fine. harmless. Yeah. And the real and I realize now that the reason why they're harmless is because one, there aren't any consequences at that time when you're just sort of like when it's early days. Yeah. Um and two, is that you don't you're not really digging any deeper. You're just so focused on feeling good in the moment at that point in time. That's all it seems to matter, right? But with any compulsiveness, I think what I've come to spot now is that eventually it stops working. Yes. Eventually. And for some people, it takes, you know, very stops working fairly quickly. And for some people, you can spend an entire lifetime and you would still not have picked up that it stopped working. You know, and for me, I think it is when each one of those has stopped working, then I have had to go through a cycle of what happens in life when I take that one thing, uh, that one behavior, that one food out. Yeah. Therefore, something as harmless or not harmless anymore, I think sugar is a bad word now. But you know, um, but the love of ice cream, God, jeez! Like I absolutely love ice cream, and yes. I love anything. And I grew up telling myself that I have such a sweet tooth, and it is so harmless. And it, but what I was not seeing was that I was actually eventually eating ice cream when I had when I had my heart broken, mm. and I did not know what to do with it. And so you know, through each one of those cycles, what has been uncovered actually is a lot of pain. Yeah. And I think it is through those cycles of just acknowledging first that this is not working. And which is why listening to that discomfort is really important, I think, for me at least. When it's not working, what else? Why is it not working? What else needs to replace this? And then you go from there. And until the next thing that comes along, if you are the kind of person who is compulsive.
0: You know, Anjali, I mean, when I listen to you, I'm of two minds. One mind mm-hmm. that says, yes, I totally get it. I get how something that seems completely benign, quite enjoyable, actually can move quickly into, you know, compulsiveness or addiction, whatever term you want to label it. Yeah. On the other hand, there's a part of me that says, my gosh, life is so tough. Why can't we just give ourselves a little pleasure, right? If my heart is broken and I want to drown it in a tub of ice cream, right? Yeah. Preferably this coconut seven layer crunch by Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. It's my preference. What's wrong with that? And for some people is a bottle of excellent Pinot Noir, right? So yeah. when do yeah. we go from that place where we are just getting through the pain to, oops, now I'm stuck doing right. this?
1: Uh, yeah. And that's a really good question. I, th- I think I'm absolutely no expert on this at all and I can only share my sort of limited experience on this. But I think it is, one, I think there's generally people out on a spectrum, right? I think yeah. there is truth in the fact that there are some people's personalities and body structures, whatever, like the whole chemistry that is actually perhaps a little more compulsive. And there are multiple theories. The science says something. There's been a lot of medical advancement. So there are theories that, go around that but I don't know if there is something absolutely definitive there are a couple of uh, people who have done a lot of work around the relationship between for example childhood trauma yep and Mm -hmm. how that eventually in Mm -hmm. some shape or form and the trauma needn't be hardcore abuse it can be quite innocuous it can be things that uh, around the area of neglect, for example, yeah. not necessarily explicit uh, abuse. And so there's so there's a lot of work. And I think one of the sort of, in my readings, I think what I have found most uh, encouraging is, is a conversation around making this connection between what happens to you in childhood and how you use compulsions <laughs> to actually cope.
0: You know, I'm chuckling at that because... Every time I've mentioned therapy to friends,
1: a lot of them look at
0: me and go, I am not sitting on anybody's couch to talk about my childhood, (laughs) right? Because it always starts there. And so everybody just has this kind of mindset that if I'm not going to talk about my childhood, then I'm just not going to do it. I find that
1: almost hilarious, but but there's so much truth in it. I think so. You know, unfortunately, I think it is true. And I don't think, And I, you know, it's not to say the parents are the villains. It's not really that. Mm. And I think that is, mm. uh, if, you, if you read somebody like Gabor Mate or like Bessel van der Kolk, I think these are people who've really acknowledged things like the role of culture, the role of governance, the role of politics, the role of society in general. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, so there's no formula. So when you, you know, when you ask how, so there's no formulas. So I think eventually when you do, to go back to your question on what do you sort of, how do you recognize it? I think for me personally, when I know I'm on that spectrum, the first point is when I actually can see that this is not working and I can't seem to stop. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think that's a very big sign where... And you know it, you know, you may be in denial about it, but you know somehow that, listen, like I don't need to be working 12 hours. Yes. And I don't need to be, but I can't seem to stop. I don't need to be doing three hours in the gym, really. That's like crazy. Yeah. But I find that I say I'm going to get up and just do one hour, but I end up being in the gym for three hours. Right? Wow. Um, you know, and I think, and to your example of like, what's wrong with having burnt up, There's absolutely nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing. But I think the thing is that if I find, this is my test for myself, right? If I'm going through something difficult and I am trying to eat that ice cream in order to avoid that pain, mm-hmm. or I'm not even willing to acknowledge it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, I just want to run Netflix and just like, give me a break, Right. Sure, take that break. But for me, at least, I know that I can take that break once, I can take that break twice, but at some point, I have to get down to the work. Yeah. I absolutely have to get down to actually... And, you know, and now I'm, when I say I'm a little faster because I've been through a few cycles, but, you know, my first cycle took me like 20 years, yeah, to actually recognize that, oh, this is like not really working. So I'm it's not really solving.
0: So without going into anything that you don't want to go into... What I like to do on this show is concretize things in a way that people can understand, right? And get away from the abstract a little bit. Is is Mm -hmm. there anything that you can share, that you're willing to share in your personal experience that really kind of highlights the entry point, the point where you're stuck and the point where the, the light bulb goes off and says, wait a minute, I can't get out of this. Because I think one of the fundamental things I reflect on is the question of control, and how we mm. really love to be in control as human beings, most of us do. So what you said just now about when you say, I'm going to go to the gym and only do one hour, and you end up doing three, you've lost control somewhere there. There's something yeah. else that's kind of driving it that is not really on the whole you, right? So I'm yeah. just thinking, how does this manifest itself in your experience? And at the back of mind, I'm also thinking about everything we have just talked about, what is rooted in our culture, our history, our environment, right? Who we surround yeah. ourselves with. Is there anything you can share about that that you're okay sharing?
1: Yeah, sure. And, I, you know, I mean, I think it's something that, that I, to be honest, it's not the most comfortable to talk about, but mm-hmm. I do feel the need to talk about it because I think there is, there is so much stigma about stuff like this, especially, you know, in the, in the culture that I come from, there is so much stigma around this that it actually eventually, I think, prevents people from getting help. Yeah. You know, and I think that is the tragedy of of something like this. And I think that, you know, if that's the purpose, then yeah, I'd love to share. So, you know, for me, I think I started drinking when I was about 17, 18, and it was really very social in in the beginning. And it was, you know, all my friends drank and I drank with them. And then over the years, I think what I began to notice was that it was actually becoming my goal. Mm. You know, it was something that I was beginning to sort of use as a crutch in some way, use as something that would make me feel better. But eventually, and for the longest time, I think that was my narrative as well. That, you know, I mean, it's like I can I can control it. I can stop. I can, you know, whenever I want, whenever it gets. But I think that is the sort of like, that is the power, I think, of these kind of like, addictions or compulsions eventually it got to a point that's what I think is a turning point in any journey of this kind where you want to stop but you somehow cannot and it is you're absolutely right you have lost control you have lost the power of choice in that matter you know and then it comes to a point where you literally it's a really it's a place where you're stuck between two really really you know hard places where you can't live with it but you can't live without it yeah And that is really, I think, it's a very uncomfortable place, but it is also the place where a solution starts. Mm. Because that is when in that dissonance and in that sort of like place of tension, I think you'll find a place of, like at least I found myself quite broken, you know, because I had prided myself on willpower, on things like willpower or or on things like, you know, um, that I can do what I set my mind to. And if I want to just stop, I don't have to. I can and and when I reached a point where I couldn't and then it became about okay you know now what and the other thing that I think I had to recognize was that it's like how does a broken brain fix itself (laughs) that's
0: a really good question I think that
1: is it's like I don't know how to do that I don't know and for me it has always taken an external perspective it has taken something else to come in To that space and to be able to help, and that is the only point where I think I have been open enough to receive the help, and then I've gotten the help that I want to. And now it's been many, many years since I have you know uh, used alcohol, and I think that is now typically the cycle that you know anything that I and I think you know as I go through these cycles, it's like that layer. Once you peel that layer, something else will come up, and then that has to go through its own journey. So it's. Sometimes,
0: yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I was reading a, a book, and I just started of it now. I don't remember the title, but it was a memoir by a woman who was a high functioning alcoholic. She was a journalist. I don't know if she still is. But the way she chronicled her journey with alcoholism blew my mind because. Yeah. The way she described a bottle of wine sounded like she was describing a lover, right? (laughs) The sound it made when the cork pops, the sound it makes as it slides into the glass and the, it just, and you know, she was talking about it from a place of, I've come through the other side, right? But this is how I felt at the time. And she talked about the lengths to which she went to mask it, to hide it. And most people in her life hadn't the slightest clue. But then she had something else that was kind of like the the secondary one, right? The kind of secondary problem, which was workaholism. Because Mm. to make up for what people
1: people, to, to
0: make up for that and to hide it really well, she just worked a lot more. And her question was always, would an alcoholic be able to do this great? Would an alcoholic be able to cover this story? And so it was her way of saying, you know, what you think I am, I'm not. Because look at all the other things that I am. And I right. found that to be riveting because when you talk, let's go back to workaholism maybe, because I think perhaps if I fall anywhere in that spectrum, it's probably in that space. And this whole idea that I'd say, okay, give me one hour to finish this. An hour and a half later, I've migrated from that to something else. Maybe I'm running late yeah. for dinner. Maybe I'm running late for who knows what, but then I go to the next thing. And the ludicrous idea that I can do it by myself. Yes. It's nonsense. The reason why you're in that position is because you couldn't stop yourself, right? Yes. And there are people who will say, I mean, they have done it on their own and they've been successful, but a lot of people need help. And it doesn't need to be a therapist. It needs to be just one person who knows what you're going through, who can hold you accountable.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's bang on, you know? And I think, and that's why I think, you know, for me, the simplest thing is like in some ways everybody needs one person in their life who can actually show you a mirror and tell you what an asshole you are. Yes. You know? And I think it is that, and I, you know, the asshole bit is a bit sort of like extreme perhaps, but I think somebody who can actually tell you the truth. And I think in cases and things like alcohol or things like drugs or things like anything that is so sort of like destructive, I don't think too many people have the experience. Mm. And I don't think people, too many people have the sort of like, the information uh, or the education or the training to be able to deal with something like that. And so, you know, I definitely found that, you know, the, there weren't too many people around me who actually knew what was going on either. Yeah. Only eventually when the right kind of help and the right kind of help are, I think, the people who actually have been through the same and who can actually, you know, help you through that. But but yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. I think uh, there is such a stigma against getting help there is such loss of ego and loss of face yes. when you have to that you have to get help but i think things there are times when i'm i'm sure everybody has different experiences of this but something or the other will get you down to your knees yes. you know eventually.
0: i believe that because i was reading i remember i went to the airport i had a long haul flight a few years ago and i forgot to bring a book with me and i stopped by a shop and i picked up a book called the power of on and right. have you read that? I forget who wrote it. But no, she, I haven't. The Power she, of On or Power of Now? The Power of on. on. Right. And she's saying, I mean, the author was basically saying we're always on. And she was talking about yeah. the use of technology as an addiction, right? As a compulsive yeah. tendency. And of course, she's hilarious. She goes through these questions, right? She couches them in terms of your phone or iPad or television use, whatever. And she asks, But you know, there is a few things that she was asking. Like, what is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? When your alarm sets up, do you pick up your phone? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever the reason, maybe some people may say I pick it up to look at the time. That that's not the question. What is the first thing you reach out for in the morning? Yeah. How many times you check your phone before breakfast? How many times you Mm -hmm. check your phone before lunch? Do you find you don't get off the phone? With your friends when you're going to the bathroom, do you find yeah. that you're checking your phone right? You stop at a red light before you cross the street and you whip out your phone. Do you find yourself checking your phone when you're actually interacting with people, whether at the meeting or at dinner? And these questions just went on and on and on, right? Mm. Mm. And by the time that she was done and I had responded, she flipped and she said, These are the questions that get asked when people mm. go to any kind of anonymous program. Mm. And she said, if all I did with these questions was take out alcohol or drugs and plug the device.
1: Same thing.
0: Blew my mind. <laughs> and at that yeah. point, that's when I started taking a step back and saying, okay, there are some things I need to put in place because I use my device way too much. And I don't right. know how many people are willing to acknowledge <clears throat> that they do. It's so not consciously yeah. I say no devices at dinner. The mm. fact that you even have to say that is a recognition that you use your phone at dinner.
1: Overuse, yeah. You
0: know, and we're at dinner. I went out once with, with a good friend of mine and we sat there. And she nudges me in the middle of dinner. She says, look around you. We had all these couples, Friday night, fancy restaurant, dolled up for each other. And we're all on their phones. And my question was, who are they talking to? Your partner is right <coughs> yeah. here. Yeah, and, yeah. So, and so when I think about that and I think about the fact that now we're home, most of us are under lockdown, it almost seems like we have two ways to go. We're either binging on work or we're binging on our devices. And sometimes our yeah. work is on our devices, so we're binging
1: on both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and I, you know, but it, it's interesting when you talk about technology, right? So with any of these substances, and I'm going to call technology a substance as well, right? And if you, the substance is actually, I think the, only the symptom. It is only the outer sort of physicality of the whole thing. But if you dig a little deeper, I think it's, it's fascinating to me where something like social media, mm. you know, and I'm, I'm right now on a break from social media. I've just decided that during this time, I just didn't want the extra noise that, was coming in with social media, and I just wanted to break from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I notice a distinct difference because it is—it is a time when I get to hear my own voice, yes, as much as possible, right? And and it's a very uncomfortable voice because that voice is saying you're not good enough and you're not uh, like that kind of like nonsense crap. But you know, the only time I hear that is when I'm quiet enough. Yes. And I think more often than not, if you're not even going to be quiet enough to hear that voice and to actually start intimately engaging with it in some shape or form, until then, I think, you know, it'll be technology today, it'll be something else tomorrow, you know, you'll just keep it like one thing yes. or the other. Yes. And I think deep down, something like technology, there's something, at least from, for me, I think I realized when... And I can see it sometimes where it becomes about, okay, am I being seen? That's the question it seems to be answering, Mm. you know? Am I being seen? Am I somebody acknowledging me? Is somebody seeing how amazing I am? And then I realized I have actually just outsourced my entire validation mechanism to the world outside.
0: I, that is powerful. No, you know. Outsourcing your validation to the outside. That is worth a pause and a reflection. That is, yes. A lot of us don't think about that, hey? I mean,
1: this- I don't think we're designed sh- to it in many ways. I don't think Facebook wants us to think that.
0: <laughs> you know, I'll give you an example of why that resonates with me. And I've talked about this in previous shows because I think it's just the, the season, right? Mm. I was telling a friend that these days I rotate the same four outfits, right? Mm. Because where am I going? And what does it matter? And um, she said to me, she wakes up, she lives in, um, she's in um, Geneva. She wakes up every morning, no matter what, what it is. And she's on lockdown. She puts on a pair of earrings and she wears lipstick. Mm. And in my head, I'm thinking, but you're not going anywhere. But her point was, I grasped it later. She's doing it for her. Right. Which beg the question I know we are, we live in civilized society and, you know, you can't just be running around looking crazy. But it, for me, it really begs the question. I certainly love to look good. I love clothes. I love yeah, fashion. Yeah. For me, it's an expression of a part of my, of who I am. Yeah. But under lockdown, I'm like, actually, I haven't been in my closet in weeks. So the question yeah. becomes, who was I dressing for? Right. right? The workplace calls for business casual and yeah. however you define that is up to you but it just had me in this headspace of so for all these years all these clothes however they're cut and all these colors how much of them are really about me versus mm. about creating an image that i want others I mean, to react yeah. or respond to yeah which is fine because at the end of the day, we're forever negotiating with the world right we negotiate how we want to be Absolutely.
1: perceived we're all social beings so, exactly you know.
0: And so, but for me, I think the realization that came out of that is to know the difference.
1: Mm, Absolutely.
0: What is it that I'm doing for me? And am I attuned to when I'm doing it consciously for the world? Yes. And to get something out of it. Because I think when those lines get blurred, that's when you have a problem.
1: That is such amazing self-awareness, I, mean, I Absolutely. I think for me also, it is about the consciousness around it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're doing it unconsciously or you're worse, uh, you know, in denial or you're making excuses and you actually think it's about sort of like, you know, something else when it's really about fulfilling that basic need yes, you know yes. and there's nothing wrong with that i think like i said we're all you know, we're social beings and i think at the heart of all of this sort of like needs to be is a very fundamental human need for connection yes it's a very fundamental human need to authentically connect and i think that that i think is the sort of like a big realization for me as well, when it comes to connection, and I've been guilty of it, right? So when I'm talking about connection, when my image is connecting with somebody else's image, Mm. you know, that conversation just tires me out now. Yeah. It feels exhausting. It feels like I just do not have the patience, the time. I don't want to, life's too short, more so now. And I'm like, I just don't want to waste my time there. I am definitely interested in connection, but... The hard part, I think, definitely for somebody like me, is you know that authentic connection takes a kind of vulnerability. Yes. You yes. know, and I think that you know that that kind of vulnerability, which is not really about just being able to talk about your feelings, right? Yes. I'm not talking about that kind of vulnerability. That is for that's like in some ways the, the hard for some people but I think the kind of vulnerability where you're willing to let somebody else see see you sometimes yeah what a freaking moron you are and, or, and you know and and, hot or, and still be willing to be friends or still be willing to engage and still be willing to sort of you know
0: and, but, uh, but and not I think, in a savior way that's the other thing not, I beg your pardon? not in a savior way in a no, kind of no, way because not at all you know we have personalities that sometimes gravitate towards being a messiah and it's not intentional either but when you find yourself and I found myself in that position sometimes where I'm, I'm being I'm being a big messianic right it's like okay but she has an issue let me be her yeah. friend so I can help her no no, yeah. no 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 <laughs>
1: no <laughs> yeah no I think that's a huge part of adulting right like getting those boundaries in place and yes. when somebody's I think Problem is not about you. Yes, and because they're sharing it with you doesn't make you the nicer person yes. or the yes. you know. Yes. and you know, yes. and I think those are very fine sort of distinctions and subtleties that I think one learns, I guess, along the journey. Yeah. But yeah, definitely, I think it's that sort of because the the, the narrative around victimhood
0: mm. Mm.
1: is another one. I think that is like I'm like. Yes. Yeah, I, I've been there and I've done it, and I still, I'm sure, do it from time to time. But it is just something that I find quite—it's just not something that I find quite useful. Yeah, you know what? What I found is
0: hard about that is owning it. I was yeah. quite irritated once with with a friend, and I was talking to my coach, and you know how you go from one conversation into another, and I was just ah, blah, 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 this person. Blah, blah, blah. And and she listened very patiently to everything I had to say. And then when I was done, she looked at me and she went, so who's the victim now? Yeah. (laughs) You're complaining about all these things that this person has done. So who's the victim? She's done all these things to you. To you. And it was a big kind of, (laughs) how dare you? You're supposed to be on my side. But then I caught myself, right? And I think, The other thing that, you know, it's great to learn all these things, but then I get to a certain point where I feel like it's almost like psychoanalysis paralysis, right? You can like unpack yourself and unpack yourself and unpack yourself endlessly, right? And then you get to a point where it's like, okay, so what am I supposed to do with all this stuff? Because it's just stuff, right? It's just stuff. And I think a lot of people get there if they ever make it that far and they decide, what is the point of this? Because ultimately, yes. as human beings, we will keep unraveling, and I don't mean in a negative way. I mean we just keep you peel us another layer. So, at what point, in your experience, are you just enough? You know,
1: like bandages and all. I think that keeps happening. To be honest, I don't think there's one point. I think what I, I tend to see it as that whenever you know, whenever there is a cycle like this, there is a small process that needs to happen. Once you've put yourself through some kind of process like that, I think you reach a small end. And you go, okay, now for now, I'm good. Now I can leave this on the side and I can allow for some kind of assimilation to happen and I'm going to go on with my life, you know, till the next thing comes along that actually sort of like makes me pause and go like, what? So I completely agree with you. I am actually, that's one of my absolute, like, what do you call, uh, defenses, right? Like where I can intellectualize or I can completely unpack and, and make that into a virtuous thing. Because I'm like, I'm just like, you know, I know so much about myself and yeah. all of that. But I also find that eventually, to be honest, it just, you get sick of yourself. Yes. Like you know I just I get sick of it and I'm like okay enough now I do not want to think about myself for one second more because it's also a kind of and narcissism that kind of creeps scene right it's like me me, me 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 all the time yeah, yeah exactly yeah and then you do that but you have, which is why I think you have to surround yourself with people who can see that and who can tell you okay babe that's just your now. Let's start doing something. Can you think of somebody else? Can you as do I, something? As i like to, to say, it?
0: hashtag doing the most. <laughs> like yeah. Now you're just doing the most. Let's keep it moving. Yeah. Let's go watch a movie. Let's go talk about yeah. boys. Let's Absolutely. go pick up. Let, let's go I do know, something.
1: I yeah, but I also don't think you're, like, at least I find that it is not, like, it's not humanly possible to just sit in that space forever. Yes, that's true. Uh, I, you'll destroy yourself. So you actually can't. And you're, physically, you can't. So literally, you go for one hour of, like, you go for a run, something will break. Yes. You go for a, you know, shower, something will break. You go, you have a meal, or chat with a friend, let it all out. Somebody at least is aware. And then it's out and it's done. And then you can move on.
0: You know,
1: it doesn't have to be something that you that paralyzes you. So, Angelina, the time that we
0: have, one of the things Mm -hmm. that I think you and I have talked about over the course of the time we've known each other, and I think really belies a lot of what we've talked about today, is grief. Yes. Mm -hmm. I find we talk about a lot of people. We talk about love. We talk about loss. Mm -hmm. We talk about hurt we talk about anger, we talk about greed. Grief is something that I haven't seen really been uh, held
1: mm. in society,
0: right? Which is interesting to me because I don't know how you talk about loss without talking mm. about grief, right? Those Absolutely. things go hand yeah. in hand. And when we look at a lot of compulsive behaviors and to the extent of addiction, a lot of people, for them, it comes from loss, And grief from that loss. And so you talked about earlier losing your father at 15. When you think back, whatever your compulsiveness was at the time, how much of that was associated with just numbing yourself from the grief of whatever you were feeling? Because I know in my experience, I had a significant loss in 2007. And I think it probably took me at least a decade to grieve and the thing that allowed that allowed me to cope, not to come over, but to cope, was work. Mm-hmm. I did not actually make that connection until the last few years, right? Because when I was working, I wasn't thinking about what happened. Mm. And so have you had a parallel experience or was yours sort of fit from somewhere else?
1: No, absolutely the same. I think it was um, it was that I, you know, at 15, I certainly didn't have the tools to actually acknowledge what had happened. And, you know, I got into a mode of being like the strong person. That was like the mask I chose, uh, where I'm just going to be this tough girl who's going to be like, you know, independent. And nice. I'm going to sort of like have my own life. And I'm going to not allow for such weaknesses to, you know, be part of my story. But I think there is something so profound about grief, I think, that you can't escape it, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can escape any of these very natural human emotions, whatever it may be. And you certainly can't. I, I couldn't escape it, you know. And eventually, I think the various cycles that I'm talking about, eventually, those had to stop for me to actually start confronting the grief. Yep and start really unpacking that grief. And you're right. And I think the, one of my biggest realizations was also that, you know, my grieving has not only about been about things that I've lost, it's also like things that unlived lives. Things like, you know, stuff that I just didn't know when I was 20 or I didn't know when I was 23. And I'm realizing now, and there's so much grieving that's happening now during this time for me. Mm. And, but I think the most powerful thing for me right now, I think has been just sitting and allowing that grief to happen and not sort of running away from it and not yeah. trying to numb it and not trying to justify it, but really allowing those messy tears to come out, allowing the anger to come out, allowing, you know, and and resisting the temptation to create something beautiful from it.
0: Yes, please say more about that.
1: (laughs) You know, I think for me, like, you know, there is something about experiencing the rawness of emotions like anger and guilt and shame and grief, which have been, I think at least where I come from, historically been so stigmatized Mm -hmm. uh, as emotional spaces that one doesn't really just want to go there at all, you know, And but not to sort of like Not to feel the need to turn that into something that the world will consume uh, and for it to be palatable, you know. Mm. I really don't care. At this point, I really don't care. This is my personal emotion, my personal space. I will choose to share that with people I trust and who I think will be able to hold space. And there aren't too many of those. And thankfully, there aren't too many of those. It can become something of, at least I can definitely use it as a victim card. And I think there's something about just stripping everything, something like grief from all of those external layers. And really just going back to what that 15-year-old girl felt. Like I was devastated when I lost my father because he was absolutely dear to me and he... Like I loved him and I, and very importantly, I completely believe that he loved me and to mm. lose that at 15 and then mm. to spend a lifetime, I think, almost searching for that replacement in something or the other. And I think grieving that, the, the futility of that, I guess, in some way has been quite liberating, you know, and I do that in bits and pieces as much as I can manage. Yeah. And I'm sure when I'm like in you know, five years time, there'll be another bout or whatever. I don't know. But I'm quite sure that the answer does not lie in running away from it. Uh, It lies in absolutely sitting with it and allowing it to do what it does to you.
0: And you know, what you said about the need to not feel the compulsion to create something beautiful out of it. A lot of times when we are grieving or we suffer loss, there is almost a requirement, an unsaid requirement to... Replace it with something, Mm. right? To I remember, and I've heard this in hospitals when women lose children or have miscarriages or what have you at birth, they're told. Yeah. They're told get pregnant as quickly as possible. That was the most maddening thing I ever heard because to me, I was like, what do you mean get pregnant as soon as possible? Because yeah, you can't just replace you can't just replace it's like telling somebody who got divorced or who lost a spouse just get married tomorrow no those two things you can't to me it just it blew my mind that this was the sort of thing that people were being told but it also happens in very everyday ways i had a a dear friend who lost a job and of course in these times it's very hard and right away they went searching for another job which makes a lot of sense But what I was trying to understand in talking to her was, okay, you've been at your company for a really long time. You have built a life there. Most of your friends are from there. At what point do you just say, I'm going to take a week off, three days off, two nights off, whatever it is, and just say, you know what? I have lost something here and I need to grieve it, bury it, and move on, right? Yes. And so yes. that permission and space to just say, I need a minute, I need a yes. day, I need a week, yes. I need a year, depending on how big the losses or the grief, right? Whatever you need. But I think it's so important that we accept and acknowledge for ourselves and for others that sometimes we just need a minute.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think it is, like the word I use, I think is Pause you know, mm. where I just need to pause for some time and I just need to figure out what has happened, what is it that I'm really like going through to acknowledge all of that and get the help I need yes. and process it in some way. And, you know, with these things, I don't know. I don't know if there's a point where you go, okay, now I'm completely resolved, and now it's completely solved. And it's not about that, Yeah. you know, but I think it is just to yourself reaching a point where I'm like, okay, now... I feel ready or mm-hmm. I feel like I can move on from this. And I've actually processed it in, yes. in, in a healthy way.
0: And I think that's what it is for me. It's very much a question of, first of all, can I just understand what just happened here? Yes. Can I make sense of it, whether it's on an intellectual level, an emotional level, a spiritual level, can I reconcile what just happened here? Because I think yes. not being able to do that for me means I'm just shooting darts in the dark. I don't know what has come at me. Therefore, yeah. when I'm crawling out of my hole, I don't know what to expect out there because I haven't actually taken stock of what happened. So for me, foundational yeah. is a question of what the heck just happened. Then it's uh, OK. Now that I know what happened, what can I manage and what can I not manage? So I need to outsource somebody yeah. else. So yeah. for me, it's very much a part of that coping mechanism and a part of getting back to yourself. It's just understanding your baseline, understanding what you can or cannot do within that baseline, and then taking baby steps, right? But instead, a lot of what I see is something bad happened, time to go off and act. Yeah. That activity
1: is part of yeah, that, dynamic, it's that yeah. right? You think you've actually managed to escape it. Or you've run away. Where in reality, I think it literally is just a delay. You're just delaying it. That's all it is. It will eventually come back in in, in, you you know, in worse ways. And and you're absolutely right. I think that the sort of like processing enough to know what is the narrative for you about this in your life. You know, Mm -hmm. what is the key message or what is the key learning? And, you know, and sometimes it's not like every experience comes with, oh, this is lesson number 28. This is what it, it doesn't come like that. But I think, you know, at least for me, at least to reach a point where sometimes I'm like, okay, I can't get the lesson right now. I I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I've shed like five buckets of tears over this and I'm done. And I don't like this is, and and I I don't want to get out of this being the victim mode. I see my part. I see that person's part. I see life's part. I see the universe's role and that's it enough for now. Now let's move on. You
0: That is the baseline that is saying, okay, I can't figure it out right now, but I know I can't figure it out right now. I don't have answers and I know I'm not going to get answers in the short term armed with that knowledge and that information. I can now forge ahead. Uh,
1: Yes. And a lot of times I think the lessons are also in retrospect, you know, a lot of like, what, what this has been about, I think, is like you look back at life and you're like, oh, my God, like all of that happened. I was not even present to it. Yes. You know, I didn't even know what the hell was going on. Yes. And so now I think that's what my sabbatical is all, all about, really, where, you know, I've reached a point where I'm like, I need to wear a different pair of glasses, you know, mm. to actually see the world now as where I am in my journey. And a lot of my sort of like, you know, rose tintedness has come off, I think. Yeah. And, and now I'm curious to see what, what the world looks like and what my, you know, what, what I look like to myself. So
0: thank I am you. excited for you. I'm excited for you. When, when, you, when we did um, this, week's, this week's show, we had Dr. Imelda Singlet Fomanka on it. And we're talking about, you know, who do you dress for and how do you go out and how do you want to look? And we're both talking about the fact that it all boils down to when you look in the mirror, The proverbial mirror. Do you like what you see?
1: Yes.
0: At the end of the day, that's what really matters, right? We're not just talking, in in that context, we're talking about, you know, dressing up and going out. But we're talking about it on multiple levels. Do you like what you see? Because at the end of the day, even if the world likes what they see, if you don't, you know it.
1: Absolutely. And And I would just add, I'm I'm like, uh, the only word I would change, I think, is, do you like how you feel? Mm. you know do when i look in the mirror it's like that's the question do i like how i feel about myself do i like am i comfortable uh, with what i see and i think that there's some days where i'm not and where i'm like oh my god um and then there are lots of days where you know these days i am pretty pleased and that, yeah. that's a good place
0: <laughs> i'm pretty pleased i like that well Anjali, <laughs> i mean this has been just phenomenal I, I wanted to have this conversation with you because, like I said in the beginning, I know you've been through some challenging times, but your perspective is what has always really fascinated me, right? The ability to, to self-examine... But not to sit in it because that in and of itself can become like a full time job, right? Yes, yeah, sure, exactly. Um, so so thank you so much for coming on Mama Talk, talks a different take and sharing your insight, your very very beautiful soul, your very beautiful self. They can't see you, I can, and we'll have a picture <laughs> that goes with this, so they'll see just how beautiful you are inside and out. And I think one of the things that I always want to make sure. Um, Beyond friendship, I'm learning something from my circle of friends and from Mm -hmm. you is that ability and the willingness actually to look at your shadow and your light and to reconcile them and where they're not quite lining up to be okay with it and to give you time. And so that's the biggest thing. I haven't told you that, but that's one of the biggest things you have taught me in the time that I've known you. No, you, you.
1: haven't. <laughs> that is so wonderful to hear. Thank you, Abam. And I'm really, I do want to say that there aren't too many people that, you know, I would have this conversation so openly with. And we've had so many conversations yeah. in the brief time we've had. And this just felt like an extension of one of those long chats we've had. And uh, thank you so much for holding space and allowing me to share Absolutely. my story. Absolutely. And- it's always a pleasure to chat with you and, and keep doing what you're doing. You're amazing.
0: Thank you. And I cannot wait to see how this sabbatical unfolds. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. I know you're not, on, you're not on social media right now, but I go back from time to time and look at your pictures. Mm. And the way you see the world is fascinating. And your, and your photographs tell that whole story. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted you to come on, come on here and, and share with us, because I know your perspective is just quite different. But anyway, I've kept you longer than I planned and than you planned. No, I mean, no. Yeah,
1: no, 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 it's been a pleasure.
0: <laughs> and so have a wonderful rest of your evening and take care and let me know how the sabbatical is going.
1: Thank you. About my way, I'll keep you posted. All right.
0: Take care. Thank Angelina. you.
1: Bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed our latest episode. Share your thoughts in the comments below or by emailing AB at mamatalktalk.com. Continue the conversation in your homes and communities. And when you join us next week, please invite a friend or many for more diverse perspectives on everyday issues from everyday people around the globe. Please subscribe to our podcast at mamatalktalk.com forward slash a different tape and join our online family by following us on Twitter and Instagram. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Avi Mambo. Sigashina. Stay well.